All right, everybody, and welcome to I'm Interested. I am Mike Greenberg, and this is my very first podcast. And this is a really exciting moment for me. Let me very briefly give an explanation of what it is that we are doing here and why it is that I'm doing this. For years, the people at ESPN have been saying to me, would you like to do a podcast? And and for years, I have not really wanted to because I had four hours on the radio and now three hours on television to say anything I could ever imagine wanting to say about the world of sports. And then I started watching David Letterman's interview series on Netflix. And I thought to myself, I'd like to do that. And so I have chosen a group of people, some of them connected to the sports world, some of them not, who I find interesting. And I would like to talk to them about the things that interest me. And hopefully it will create a conversation that will be interesting to anyone who's listening. And that is why our podcast is called I'm Interested. My very first guest as we prepare to kick off the National Football League season was for a very long time the CEO of the Oakland Raiders, which is how I met her the first time. She was known by friends and foes alike as the Princess of Darkness. She is now doing sensational work analyzing football and other things on CBS for CBS Sports. And she is also the chairman of the board of the Big Three. And that is one of the reasons that our interview today, as we speak, is taking place in the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, where a few hours from this discussion, they'll be playing the championship game of the Big Three tournament. And we're going to talk about that as well. She's also the author of a terrific book called You Negotiate Like a Girl. Amy Trask is with me. And I should start by saying, and hi. Well, thank you for saying hi. Hi, Greeny. And I am beaming grinning from ear to ear because this is really a pinch me moment to be sitting here with Mike Greenberg. I'm 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 doing all I can to resist being full dork mode. Okay. Well, there's no reason you should resist that because I've been full dork mode for 20 years on ESPN and it's worked out fine. Well, I'm about to go full dork. So let's see how it goes. Um, and, and so we're going to talk about a variety of things. I certainly would like to talk about the big three and I want to talk about your uncompromising and unyielding positivity and friendliness on social media and any number of other things. But, but I want to start by solving all of football's problems. And here is the way as we kick off the football season. And as we have this conversation, we are less than two weeks away from the first game of the NFL season. I think there are conflicting messages. Okay. At one time, the league is flush with money, perhaps more successful in that regard than it has ever been. And it remains, I believe, the most popular entertainment vehicle in the United States. It is more popular than anything else in America. I remember once on Mike and Mike doing a thing where I said, we love football in this country more than we love blank. And, 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 and we were trying to come up with anything that we loved that. more. And I think the answer is there may literally be nothing. And yet at the same time, it feels like every headline is negative. And every single day, there seems to be something else that comes up that is uncompromisingly terrible. So I guess I would start the conversation very simply by asking you, as one who knows the inside of this, from a business standpoint, from a football standpoint, and otherwise, as well as maybe anyone in the world, what is the correct interpretation of where things are with the National Football League right now? Well, I think it has to be looked within the context of where are things with entertainment in general. I mean, let's take football and put it aside for just one second before we circle back. Greeny, the world has changed. When I started my career in the National Football League in roughly 82, 83, that's the 1900s, by the way, (laughs) 1982, not 1882 or 1883. 
you know, there was no social media. There was no streaming. You know, cell phones were the size of shoes or bricks. If we wanted to get a communication quickly from the NFL office, it was a fax. It wasn't, we didn't have email. And my point in sharing this all is some of the problems that people are saying are NFL related are entertainment in general. I live in Los Angeles, right in the sort of hub central of the entertainment industry. And they're grappling with the same issues. People don't want to go to the movies anymore. And movie theater owners and movie makers are having the same conversation, which is, wow, now people want to watch it at home. Television, people want to binge watch. Now, there was no binge watching. When I started out in football, we didn't have a gabillion channels and over the top. My point in sharing all of this is a lot of the issues that people raise with respect to the National Football League, are broader in scope and relate to the consumption of content in general and as a whole, not only football. The landscape of the world has changed. I do know this. There are very, very smart people looking at these issues. And I know that at least to date, football still delivers more eyeballs than anything else on television, as you pointed out. But there are issues and they need to be addressed, whether they're health and safety or rule interpretation or broadcast related. But I think they're broader than football. Okay, so I agree with you completely. Let's start with that. Football, the vehicle remains ridiculously popular. Sunday Night Football on NBC is the number one rated show every single year. People watch the games in droves. So all of that I completely agree with. But let's start getting into the individual issues then, okay? What are they going to do about the anthem? Because this has become a problem that they just cannot get out of the way of. And I, I remain floored, to be honest with you, that we are two years since the first time that Colin Kaepernick first sat and then took a knee for the national anthem, and they still cannot figure out exactly how they want to handle it, how they want to handle it. There's going to be a policy. There isn't going to be a policy. The president is tweeting. We're going to change our mind. The players can do this. Now they can't do that. We're not consulting them. Now we are consulting them. So it feels like they can't get out of their own way on this. Here's what it feels like to me. You tell me if I'm getting this wrong, because you've been inside these rooms, and all I've done is try to observe from the outside. I feel like they're trying to make everybody happy, and there just isn't any way that's going to happen. The horse is long since out of the barn on that. So my feeling is come up with a policy. Come up with a decision. Take a stand, whatever you want it to be. Let the players kneel or, or tell them they can't, but make a decision and live with it and own it and move on, because otherwise the constant back and forth, I think, creates more problems than anything else would. That's my gut feeling. And you make some tremendous observations, of course, as you always do. Uh, were I still in the league and attending those one and two per club meetings, because those are the meetings where the real business gets done behind those closed doors, I would strongly, strongly advocate that the league do two things, and I would love to see the league do this. Number one, recognize that the players are your partners. And before anybody jumps and tries to explain what the word partnership means, yes, I went to law school. I know what it means to be a partner in the legal sense. That's not what I'm saying. They are your partners in the truest sense of the word. Everybody involved in the National Football League, player, coach, front office staff, executive, league office executive and owner, has a common interest, that the league thrive. And what I think the league should do is demonstrate leadership in the following regard. Use, these are the, the words I consider the most important in business. Communicate, 
cooperate, collaborate, and coordinate. And do that with your players. So don't sit down. And, you know, there's that expression, let's sit across the table and negotiate mm-hmm. from one another. No. How about you sit alongside one another and have a conversation? So why doesn't that happen? It feels like in basketball, I hate to compare everything to the NBA. Right now, the NBA is the flavor of the month. But it genuinely does feel like the ownership and the leadership and the players in basketball are partners in the sense you're talking about. And in football, they're adversaries. Why is it there? Well, look, I have some strong views on that. I will give you my answer. I will tell you a number of people object when I say this. And I will preface it with this premise. I understand and I believe that the National Football League Players Association, the NFLPA, has a very, very important job to do. I not only understand that, I embrace that. But there was an absolute shift in dynamics, and I was in those meetings I referenced when this shift occurred, from the change from Gene Upshaw to Demoris Smith. And I use the following analogy. Remember the Aesop's fable of the... um, I don't remember if it was a frog or a toad that was going across the lake or pond. I think it was a frog. And a scorpion asks for a ride on his back. And the scorpion says, don't worry, don't worry. If you just get me across this pond, I won't sting you. And they get to the other side, and the scorpion stings him. And the frog looks up and says, what'd you do? You you promised me you wouldn't sting me. And the scorpion says, what'd you think? I'm a scorpion. Right. When you hire a litigator to run your business... Don't be surprised if you're going to take a confrontational approach to most things. Now, look, I'm not putting this entirely on the NFLPA or entirely on DeMorris. And again, I'm going to emphasize the NFLPA has an important job to do. But I did notice a shift in dynamics when we lost Gene Upshaw and DeMorris took his place. Every single issue now is an argument. And what I think the league and the NFLPA need to do, and it's on both parties to do this, is hit Control-Alt-Delete. And for those kids today who don't know what that means, Google it. It's how you reboot a computer in the olden days. Hit Control-Alt-Delete and start that relationship over with a recognition that every single person involved in the league has the same interest that the league thrive. And solve these problems as partners, not as adversaries. Can it be started over again with the people that are leading it. Can Roger and Dee do that, or do they need one or two new people? Doing I certainly it? think they can. Look, there's a lot of things we see go on in business, whether it's between a GM and a head coach or otherwise. Behavior we wouldn't accept in children. When, when I see a GM or a head coach say to the owner, you know, you've got to pick him or you've got to pick me, my response would be, if you ask me to pick one of you, I pick neither. Because what do we say to kids all the time? Go outside and find a way to get along. And we expect them to do it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be besties. You don't have to hang out together all the time. But you've got to find a way to get along to do your job. And yes, I believe it can be done. And I absolutely believe Roger and Dee can do it. Okay. I agree with everything you're saying. With regard to this specific issue, though, I I I think that we have a separate problem. We do. which, Which is that we have... A collection of uh, an enormous number of football players who feel very strongly on one side of this argument 
and we have the most powerful people, which is not Roger anymore. But now we're talking about ownership. We're talking about Jerry Jones and Bob McNair and a handful of other owners who are completely on the other side. And I don't think Roger or Dee can bridge that gap. Well, here's how I would address the anthem issue specifically. And you're right. Yeah. The league office, I, I, I tend to giggle when people talk and, and throw aspersions at Roger. The league office employees are employees of the 32 owners. Right. You're 100% right. What I would do on the anthem issue is I would turn it into a positive for this country. Were I running the league, I would say we are going to use this moment in time to show this country how to have a civil conversation, how to disagree agreeably. And I would turn this into an opportunity to say, you know what? We don't all have to agree on everything. We can disagree, but we're going to find a way to problem solve and compromise and work through this together. And I would encourage every single owner on game day to open his stadium a bit earlier to actually buy snacks. You know how I am about snacks, Greeny. There'd have to be snacks on the team. Including ice cream. Absolutely. And I would instruct stadium staff, let everybody in, snacks free of charge. And I would say, here's your one responsibility as a fan coming in early. Walk around and introduce yourself to people. Two rules. Meet people with whom you normally don't sit and have a civil conversation. Talk about the anthem. Talk about other issues in the country. Let's find a way to work through this. Greeny, all people are doing is yelling at one another. And let me be very quick to say, my dad served in the Navy and I've spoken with him about this, as I have with many, many other members of the military. And to a person, they've said, we serve this country to defend and protect the rights of others to say and to do that with which we disagree. I recognize that not everyone in the military has the same view on the anthem, just as not everyone who didn't or doesn't serve has the same view on the anthem. But we've got to find a way to work together. And I would use this moment in time as a learning experience to move forward. All right. I hope that they can figure out some way to get around this thing because I feel like this has gotten away from them. It has become a political issue. We don't do any politics in this podcast. I don't ever get into it. But it is obvious and clear that the president, by taking a position on this regularly and repeatedly, has added a layer of pressure to the issue that is making it much more difficult for them to figure out a solution. So I don't, I don't feel like they're I don't feel like they're any closer to the stuff you're talking about or to getting around this problem or to putting it to rest than they were when it all started. And I agree with you, and perhaps I wasn't clear, but that's precisely why I'm saying turn a problem into an opportunity. Right. You do have a problem. And if you're simply sitting and saying, how do I solve this problem, you may be stumped. Whereas if you say, wow, this problem gives us an opportunity to lead the country and show people how to get 60, 70,000 people in a building who don't necessarily agree with one another to find a way to compromise. Okay, so this is a problem that I, I do believe, while extraordinarily important and serious in nature, is temporary. It is something that a solution can be found to. <clears throat> the issue of significant head injury, to me, is is the league sort of facing its mortality. And so all of the discussion, as we're having this conversation... 
there is enormous controversy in some circles around some of the way they're calling penalties. Uh, they're calling penalties on this and that, and everyone is all up in arms about it. I defend the league completely on this issue. To me, it feels obvious that what has been decided, pay no attention to what anyone says. Just look at the actions. L- look at the way they're, they're, they feel they need to officiate the game. It has become obvious that they have come to the conclusion that the game played the way we have always seen it played, it will not be able to survive. That in the long run, the issues with head injuries are going to be such that whether it is legitimately too dangerous or just the perception becomes that it is too dangerous, that moms and dads stop allowing their kids to play, that they're going to have to make these sorts of adjustments and accommodations. Otherwise, the league itself is going to run into really significant trouble 15 or 20 years down the line. Do you see it that way? couple responses to that. The league is taking these issues very, very seriously. And when people push back when I say that and say, oh, come on, Amy, really? I respond as a business person, which is how I generally respond, which is, look, there is nobody who has a greater interest in trying to figure these issues out than those 32 owners. They have, putting aside doing it for the right reasons, which I believe many of them are, they have every business issue in making this game as safe as they can for the reason you just said. So I agree with you, there are efforts to make it safer. But look, a lot of this goes back years and years. When The first day I stepped into the league, which was a million years ago, there were giant signs up in the locker room, and they were there my entire career. See what you hit. Mm. Heads up football. So a lot of this isn't entirely groundbreaking, if you will. And you're right. Some of these rule changes are designed to make things safer. And I think some of the hiccups we're seeing in the rules are going to smooth out. One thing I will note is I think the law of unintended consequences was at work. I remember sitting with Jim Otto many, many years ago, and he shared an observation with me that he believes that the move to harder and harder and harder helmets and bigger and bigger, harder, stronger face masks has led to some of these issues. Because he said, Amy, in my day and age, we look to get our heads the hell out of anything. So if there was a tackle or a hit... Not only didn't we lead with our head, we intentionally kept our heads out. So maybe one thing the league needs to look at is saying, let's maybe ratchet back how strong the helmets are in some regards. And I'm not talking about going back to leather helmets, but that might be an area to look at as well. I do know this, even if you don't want to attribute humanitarianism to the league, and some people do, and in some instances it's right, they have every business interest in figuring this out. And it's not just football, as you know. They're looking at this in youth soccer, because what I learned while in the league is that concussions um, most often occur or can most often occur on the side of the head, as opposed to directly on top. And there are soccer issues as well. Oh, there are issues across the spectrum with this. I agree. This is the one area where I, I, I absolutely defend the league in their handling of it, and I think that you're exactly right. There are probably some who are doing it for humanitarian reasons. There are others who are doing it for pragmatic reasons. And whatever the combination of it is, that's why they're doing it. They're not doing this because they want to make fans angry by throwing penalties on plays that people have become accustomed to seeing and thinking nothing of. They're doing it because they recognize that they need to for whatever their reasons are. And ultimately, that's the right thing to do. You know, you make me smile because when I was a kid, I grew up in New York, and I was a fan of the New York Jets, a lifelong fan of the Jets. But the Jets were terrible throughout my childhood, the 70s. So you had to pick another team to like in the playoffs to root for, and the Raiders became my team. 
So the second you mention Jim Otto, I just start thinking about, and again, we're probably dating almost anyone who might be listening. Most of the people who remember all these names don't even know what a podcast is. But, I mean, between if, if you wake me up from a dead sleep when I'm 100 years old, I will be able to go through, I think, every starter on the Raiders in the late 70s. Wow. The Stabler, Clarence Davis, Mark Van Egan, uh, Fred Boletnikoff, Cliff Branch, Dave Casper teams with Upshaw and, and Shell on one side and Dalby and Beeler on the other side and, and, and all those guys on defense. Heck of an offensive line, huh? It was, a great off- it was a great team. The Raiders and the Steelers in the 70s. So now we're talking about football. Okay, so now we can get rid of uh, and Now we're done talking about all, the, all these other things. Talking about football. Football was never better, in my opinion, in my lifetime of watching it, than when the Raiders played the Steelers in the 70s. You know what's fascinating is I meet so many, and over the course of those 30 years I spent in the NFL, met so many Jets fans who identified the Raiders as their second favorite team just as you did. And what I learned was in those days, if you were living in New York, when the Jets game was over, you got the Raiders Usually. game on television. Right. And I thought, wow, if that isn't a meeting of a strange world, the Jets fans, and I can't do this to you on your podcast because the language is just inappropriate. But someday I'll tell you some of the things that were yelled at me when I was on the sideline at Jets games by Jets fans. Oh, trust me. You don't have to. Believe me, I'm more than aware of it. But yeah, the Jets, the Raiders Another piece of it is that the Raiders and the Jets are old AFL teams. Right. So my parents, who, from whom I got my Jets fandom, from whom I inherited it, they always rooted for the AFL teams in the absence of anything else. So, you know, all other things being equal, they became American Football League fans. So all those teams that came from the old AFL, the Chargers and the Broncos and the Raiders and the Jets and the Bills, the, the Jets obviously were our first team, but we rooted for them whenever they played anybody else. And so the Raiders and the Steelers. And so that was when football was great. So football was what it was then. It is what it is now. And there are things about it now that I think are better than it's ever been before. What's it going to be in 20 years? If you and I are sitting and having this conversation 20 years wow. from now, what will the NFL be? What will the game feel like and what will the business be like? Wow. Um, first of all, if I knew the answer to that, I would be so heavily invested in the stock market. <laughs> um, I, I would just – I'd be a billionaire. I don't know. And I'm not equivocating because I don't want to answer. I have no idea. And that's sort of the fun of it. And the reason I think it's so hard to predict is how fast the world is changing. We talked a few minutes ago about the difference in technology between the time I started my career and now. And I think that's going to continue and be exponential. Maybe one thing we'll see is more international growth. I know it's a priority for the league, the games in London, the games in Mexico City. Perhaps we'll see a more global game. Um, I don't know. Is it realistic? Is it realistic that there will be a team... In London, Mexico City feels more realistic to me just from a travel standpoint. I can't imagine Seattle playing London. It just seems impossible. Amen, brother. Um, I don't like the idea of a team permanently located in London for that reason. And this is an argument, a discussion. And when I say an argument, I mean a good-natured business argument I had with the league office for years and years and years and years. There is a tendency, Greeny, of people in the upper sort of East Coast area, New York, Connecticut, that whole area, to sort of think they're central to the world. And there's this state called California. We're a little bit to the west of you, and you identified Seattle. Mm -hmm. It's one thing for an East Coast team to make a trip to London. 
it's an entirely different proposition for a team that's west of the Rockies to make a trip to London. And everybody always responded, but AIM, they can have an East Coast game and then hop straight over to London and then have their bye after. I don't care. It's a long trip from the West Coast to London. And how, what is the London team well, going to do? Right. Every road game they play is a minimum of 4,000 miles away. Right, and the discussion was maybe you bring them over for four road games in a row. But I think the problem goes beyond game day. If you're the London-based team and you want to look at a free agent on Tuesday, because Tuesdays are the day, for the most part, that teams who have injuries or needs to fill out a roster bring in free agents, you're not going to fly a free agent from the U.S. to London for a tryout. And people say, well, you'll have a U.S. base. They can try out here, and then you can just watch by video or some other remote means face – I don't know. God, I don't mean to sound like Bill Belichick when I say that. (laughs) I love Bill Belichick, so – I just, I'm not trying to quote him and be cute. I just, I don't do any of those FaceTimey thingies. Correct. So whatever you call it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't allow your coach to come outdoors and meet the player. It doesn't allow your GM to walk out and look at this guy work out. It doesn't allow your head trainer to be there to evaluate him. Yes, you can have a U.S. based site where tryouts can occur and other business can occur. That's different than bringing a prospective free agent to your facility where your coach and your trainer and your GM can walk out and look at him. There's all sorts of logistical problems. So I think London is a problem. I think Mexico City is a much easier calculation, Canada. But we may see more international growth. Okay, so we'll see. Uh, That was excellent um, insight, by the way, because it's the sort of thing that most people would never think of. Okay, I want to ask you about a few other things as well. Because you wrote a book called You Negotiate Like a Girl. You were the CEO of the Oakland Raiders for a lengthy period of time. Um, if you look up female in a male-dominated industry, there might just as well be a picture of you. And and we live now in these Me Too times. And so I'm really curious to hear your perspective on that. As you see all these things that happen, it felt like for a while there anyway, daily in the news with, with the names of these extraordinarily powerful men coming out from practically every industry. I just would like to hear your thoughts on it as, as someone who has had the life experience, the extremely unique life experience that you've had. Well, I'll answer it in three ways. Um, first of all, I'll preface this by saying I had the great, great fortune of working for almost 30 years for Al Davis, a man who treated people, um, hired them, fired them, cussed at them without regard to race, gender, ethnicity, religion, or any other individuality which has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on whether someone can do a job. And I have that great fortune again working for Jeff Quantinitz and Ice Cube with the big three. These men, just like Al, don't consider race, gender, ethnicity, religion, or any individuality when making business decisions. So I do recognize I had a good fortune. I also never spent one moment of my career thinking about my gender. I'm asked all the time by young women, what advice would you give young women in business? And I say, I have two pieces of advice. One is gender specific. Stop thinking about the fact that you're a woman. If you want to go into a room, a meeting, a boardroom, a team meeting, a coaches meeting, a meeting with team owners, municipalities, a banker meeting, any sort of meeting, and your expectation is that no one in that room is going to be thinking about your gender, then it doesn't make sense to think about your gender. The second piece of advice is gender neutral, and I won't get into that right now, but it involves hard work because working hard really matters, and that has 
no gender limitations. Every accusation should be taken seriously and should be investigated professionally and seriously. Every accuser should be treated fairly, but so too should every accused. And if you are leveling an allegation or an accusation at someone, whether in the workplace or otherwise, that allegation or that accusation should be fully and fairly investigated and you should be treated fairly. But the person you're accusing should be afforded the presumption of innocence until he or she is proven guilty. And while I recognize that's a criminal standard, I think it has to apply or should apply in civil workplace and other circumstances as well. Look, were I ever accused of something, I would cherish that presumption of innocence. Now, if ultimately an investigation, which is conducted fairly and fully, shows that I'm guilty, well, then I should suffer those consequences. And people jump on me when I say that someone accused of something is entitled to a presumption of innocence and should be treated fairly. But isn't that what we would all want if accused of something? So yes, if you accuse someone of something, whether it's workplace misconduct or otherwise, your accusation should be fully investigated, you should be treated fairly, and the person accused should be treated fairly as well. To state what I hope is obvious, of course I don't believe those things should go on in the workplace. But I think we also have to be judicious and treat everyone respectfully and fairly. It's, it's not a surprise that you would say that. I, I At the very beginning of the interview, I said, and hi. And I'm assuming many of the people listening know why I say that, and I'm sure some of them do not. Because that is sort of your little catchphrase, your little calling card on Twitter. For those of you who do not follow Amy Trask on Twitter, you should. Because you and your Twitter village are the most uncompromisingly friendly, personable, and agreeable and reasonable collection of people in the ridiculously disagreeable cesspool that generally is social media in 2018. Where does that come from? This, this, this ability... And necessity to remain reasonable that you have. Where does that come from? Well, a few things. Number one, the reason I say hi is when I walk down the street, I say hi to people. If I catch someone's eye, I say hi. If someone's walking by me and I'm smiling or they're smiling, I say hi. I do that all the time. My friends, my family occasionally roll their eyes and say, could we actually walk down a block without you saying hi to everyone? And where, I where, say, did, when did you start? You I, grew up in California. I know you went to Berkeley. Is, are you, you're from Northern California? No, I'm from Los Angeles. You're from LA. I grew up in Los so, Angeles. Because I'm from New York. And if someone says hi to me in the street, I assume they're insane. <laughs> my immediate assumption <laughs> is that person's a lunatic. I'm going in the other direction. Well, there are some people who might tell you I'm a lunatic. Okay. So we can go with that. Um, I do consider my Twitter village, which I love to be a village. And just like I say hi to people on the street, I say hi to people on Twitter because I think of Twitter as our Twitter village street. So that's why I say hi. It wasn't intended as a calling card or a catchphrase. It has caught on. I get, but it was sincere. If Greeny, if I see someone walking through the airport tomorrow, I'm going to say hi. So I see someone on Twitter. I say hi. As to the civility, there, there are real problems in this world. There are people living right now where there's not enough food, where they don't have access to clean water, 
where they may be worried that someone's going to walk by with a homicide belt or that someone's going to drop a bomb on their head. If we can't find a way to be reasoned and reasonable on social media, we've got a real problem. This is social media. This isn't looking for food to feed your family. This isn't looking for clean water. And look, I believe in disagreement. I believe disagreement is productive. One of the biggest misconceptions about Al Davis is that he wouldn't tolerate disagreement. If that were the case, I would have lost my job two weeks after I was hired because I disagreed with him forcefully. We had a knockdown drag out and we went on to have a terrific working relationship for almost 30 years. Disagreement can be good and productive and healthy and I love disagreement as long as you disagree agreeably. And I'll tell you, my Twitter village is 40 to 45,000 strong, and I can count with five or six fingers the number of times someone's been mean. Not the number of times someone's pre- expressed disagreement. We do that with one another all the time. But the number of times someone has done so in a mean manner. And each time I've seen that, I've responded, we can disagree, but there's no reason to be mean. And we have a little dialogue. And with the exception of once, every person has responded to me, you know what? You're right. I was mean. And I didn't need to be mean. I could have disagreed agreeably. Now, those are my words, not that person's right. words, but that's the sentiment. The one time that the person didn't respond, he just kind of went away. He left our Twitter village. Perhaps he <laughs> decided it wasn't for him. Or maybe he's back under a different name. I don't know. But my point is... I think that most people, if you say to them, hey, I respect the fact that you have a different opinion than me. I respect the fact that you think what I'm saying is absurd, but you don't have to be mean about it. And, you know, people tell me, gosh, Amy, sometimes you sound like you're eight years old when you're saying don't be mean to me. But you know what? I think that resonates with people. You do say a lot of things. First of all, your your little the little memes of Lucille Ball, which I love. I don't know how many people recognize all of those. I think they have to Google her. Um, by the way, Lucille Ball, birthday, August 6th, same as mine. So when I was growing up, you know, in the paper, would always list the famous people who had your birthday. So she shared my birthday. So I, I loved her from the time I could first read the newspaper because she and I had the same birthday. But I also loved I Love Lucy. But that's the sidetracking of the point. The point I'm trying to make is that you tweet things like Wowee and stuff like Can that. Can I tell you about Wowee? Please tell me about Wowee. Wowee is a word my mother said. From the time I can remember. And as a child, I thought that was the dorkiest, goofiest thing. And, you know, then as a teen, if we were in public and my mom said, wowee, I just wanted to dive under a table or hide because I thought, you know, we'd be in the car with friends and my mom would say, wowee, and I would slink to the floorboards because I didn't want anyone to know my mother said, wowee. I inherited the word. I've turned into my mother. I've turned into my mother, I now say proudly. I got that word from my mom. That's phenomenal, which is amazing considering the degree to which, at least in my experience, where I am in my life right now, I have teenagers. The last thing in the world either of them want to be is anything like me. It will so, change. It I will change. That would be delightful because if, if somewhere down the road my son or my daughter start talking like me, I think it would be fa- – if either of my kids ever says back and better than ever, I'll know we're really getting someplace. <laughs> okay. So let's let's wrap it up with a couple of quick things. Let's talk about the big three. You're, you're the chair of the board of the big three, is my, is my understanding of your specific role. You sort of run the whole business. And it's a fascinating 
idea. We see all of these new sports leagues starting here and there and the different sports that, that we're accustomed to. What is the future of that? Not necessarily just the big three, but in general. Is there room in America right now? I feel like there's a growth in soccer. There seems to me to be a little bit of a groundswell of that. Is there room for more sports in what is already a reasonably saturated sports market in the United States? I think so, but it's also room in the world, room internationally. And that's one thing I've learned since joining Ice Cube and Jeff Quantnitz in the big three. I always understood that three-on-three was huge in the United States. You can't walk past, in New York, it would be Rucker Park or any other park. In my area of the world, it would be Venice Beach or or another park without seeing three-on-three all day and all night long. What I've learned is how big three-on-three is internationally. We are being wooed in China and Brazil and throughout the Middle East. So I answer it that way because as to the big three, I know international growth is possible. And I think with respect to all sports, we need to look at the world as shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. So it's not simply a role within the United States, but the world as a whole. Oh, and by the way, I did say you're welcome on Twitter to the IOC when they announced they were going to have three on three. Which is great. I love that. And anytime anyone can take any shots, subtle or otherwise, at the IOC, I'm all for it. But that's neither here nor there. Um, And then as a final thought, just looking ahead, a, a, a preview, if we can, of the NFL season, it, it feels like if everything sort of settles down with the penalty flags and everything else, are we about to enter an unprecedented era of offensive football? Would you anticipate we are going to see passing yardage and points scored and all of that exploding in ways that we've never seen, even recently haven't seen before? Yeah, I see you just nailed it on the head where I was headed with this. I think we've been on that trajectory for a long time. I mean, look, go back to the day where, you know, bump and run and stick them and essentially the rule changes. I was going to say something improper, which is why I'm stumbling. And just let me tell you, I had this discussion a lot with Jack Tatum and George Atkinson. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine the language that I just stopped myself from using. But we've seen the change in the rules over a lot of years to favor offense. And we've seen offensive explosion. This is not the day of Deacon Jones or Jack Tatum or George Atkinson. And the evolution of the game has been such that offense, you know, has been on an upward trajectory. And you're absolutely right. If we keep changing the rules to minimize what defenders can do, the obvious ramification or repercussion, if you will, is more offense. Now, I'm a girl who likes defense. We played a game once that we won. I think it was 9-7. I thought it was one of the most glorious games ever. People told me I was nuts, but I like a defensive game. Yeah. What this does, is this is just as my mind is working through it, this lends itself more to a fantasy football era, which then leads me to something I should have asked and will do now. And that is your thoughts on legalized gambling. I haven't heard your comment. Again, you do a terrific job on CBS, and I see a lot of what you say. But I've not yet heard, one way or another, your thoughts on this notion of legalized gambling, which is now available in in a number of states, feels like it is clearly the future. I know the NFL feels like the league of the major leagues right now that is holding it at arm's length more so than Major League Baseball or the NBA are, for example. What are your thoughts in general on legalized gambling? Well, not surprisingly, you phrase that spectacularly. It's almost like you do this for a living um, by using the word legalized gambling. Because as we know, there's always been gambling. Sure. I forget that line from Casablanca about, you know, you know. I'm shocked. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, sure. I'm shocked. Rains. Yeah, I'm shocked. There's gambling. Um, there's always been gambling. The fact now is it's now out of the dark, out of the closet. It's in the daylight. Um, I don't think the issue is the gambling. 
as much as it is the league has to avoid any appearance of impropriety. And I'm very quick to note that I'm using a legal phrase and standard, which is appearance of impropriety. So even if you assume for the moment and this discussion that absolutely nothing improper occurs, the league has to avoid even the appearance of an impropriety because that can undermine confidence in the game. So when you talk about the new rules and how they're enforced, what do we want in rules as a general theory and proposition what I care about most is that penalties are enforced consistently. If it is or isn't a penalty in one game, it is or isn't a penalty in another game. If it is or isn't a penalty in the first quarter, it is or isn't a penalty in the fourth quarter. That becomes ever the more important with this advent of legalized gambling because you don't want all the airwaves Monday morning, or maybe you do want (laughs) them to be full of, well, the ref through the game or that flag compromised the gambling position. The league is going to have to work like a fiend to avoid the appearance of an impropriety. Well, look, this is exactly what I wanted this to be. I hope that everyone has enjoyed this as much as I have. Again, uh, as we sit here and speak, the Big Three Tournament Championship game is about to be played at Barclays Center here in Brooklyn. By the time anyone is hearing this, it will long since have been played, but I wish you great success Thank you. with that going forward and continued at CBS. Uh, and most importantly, I hope that we find ways to continue to have these conversations because I think it's it's very good for everybody. And I just want to say to you that this is a privilege and a pleasure and to sit here and have a conversation with you the opportunity of a lifetime yeah, that's very nice of you i kind of want i kind of feel like the eight-year-old girl who wants to jump up and down on her bed right now at a slumber party well i should have brought ice cream because we know that that's what you love but I'll hopefully find we'll some. get some later thank you amy thank trask you for doing this so my endless thanks to amy trask for an interesting hopefully enlightening conversation And just as importantly, my endless thanks to you for being here with me to share this very first podcast, and it will not be the last. We will be with you now weekly throughout this fall, and this game is new to me, but it is important if you would be so kind, if you have a moment, to subscribe and rate and review our podcast on iTunes. That would make a very big difference for me and for the people that I work for. So I hope you've enjoyed this. Thank you very much, and I will see you next week.